see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Welcome to the Art Box. Hi, Linda. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you? So, doing pretty good. Are you nice and relaxed after three days of hard hikes? I am. It was wonderful getting out. Allie Harvey is our guest today. Allie, what's the temperature like up there in Alaska? Uh, I think we're around 25 degrees. Oh. <laughs> and you're probably in shorts running around outside, right? I mean, we're on the getting colder side so if you talk to me in the spring yes but right now i'm wearing every piece of down i own (laughs) (laughs) well you want to tell us a little bit about yourself yeah first of all thank you so much for having me on artbox it's really exciting to be here and uh as you already set up i am calling in from alaska where i live in in palmer but i grew up back east in massachusetts and found my way north as a young person, kind of set on adventure and actually wanting to see the Northern Lights for the first time. So I came up to Alaska with a backpack once, twice, and then I didn't want to come back the third time, but I had this internship opportunity and I went kicking and screaming and I I was really resistant to come back because I knew that the third time would be the charm and I'd want to stay. And I didn't feel quite emotionally ready to make that level of a decision and leap from the East Coast all the way up here. But you know the end of that story. So I came up within the week of being here for the internship. I was on the phone with my parents back east saying, yeah, I love it here. I'm staying. And then stayed in Alaska for a while and actually ultimately met my now husband while in Nevada for a conference. I ended up moving from, this is, you know, a lot of life kind of condensed into a short little bit here, but I ended up moving from Alaska down to Reno, Nevada, for me of all places at the time, be with him before we came back up north. But I am just in love with Nevada. I consider it my other home. Um, I actually identify more strongly with Alaska and Nevada as home these days than I even do of Massachusetts. Uh, Back East is more like where my, my family is, but yeah, I I am a more and more able to unabashedly call myself a creative person. That's something I think I've always had as a young person on. But as I'm becoming more and more grown up, I feel a lot more confident and comfortable inhabiting that term. And that creativity manifests in painting, which I've been doing since I was 16, and writing, which I've been writing since long before then. And just I, in other professional spheres too, I facilitate meetings and it comes through and kind of the creativity needed to have 
big picture awareness, but also help support people in groups and connect the dots and keep things moving. So, yeah, I don't like being bored. That, I think, is just kind of the title summary of myself. Boy, I think that's around all three of us, right? Absolutely. <laughs> now, Allie, good company. I heard that you have a mobile art studio. So I looked up mobile art studio online, and there are a lot of pictures of of um, very colorful RVs and vans. What does your mobile art studio look like? Yeah, mine, I can't believe I'm actually talking about it, right? Because just a year ago, the mobile art studio that I have was still a dream. I didn't even have a rendering of it yet on paper quite yet. Um, but I imagined it and it is a very sleek Airstream trailer that's the, the iconic Airstream. It's, you know, the silver, shiny exterior. Um, and it has my name on on both sides, which still, again, it just feels kind of like a novelty. Like, I realized it when I picked it up. Like, whoa, my name is emblazoned on both sides of this trailer. That's kind of wild, right? Like, wow. better not drive poorly. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, true. So they would know who to yell at if you, if you cut <laughs> someone <laughs> off. I forgot about that. Uh-huh. My website's right on the back of it, so I've thought about that as I'm going kind of classically slow as a trailer in front of somebody. <laughs> Thinking about, don't give me bad Google reviews. But yeah, I chose I chose that iconic design because the concept of the mobile art studio for me is really about getting to bring it to the wild places that I love to paint so much and then meeting people there. And, you know, when you see somebody in an RV or a truck camper, to me, that springs privacy that says, you know, I'm out here trying to enjoy nature, like give me some space. But when I see an Airstream, it's just, it is iconic. I want to go up to it. I kind of want to see what it's about. And particularly if I see an Airstream with, you know, somebody's art, Ali Harvey art, in my case, emblazoned on the sides, it's, it's interesting, it's welcoming, it's, it's beckoning. And so that's why I chose the design that I did. I love Airstreams. And I have seen so many pieces of art that actually include um, paintings of airstreams in it. Do you do that? Really? Yes. <laughs> I need to check out more of that. I did my first airstream painting this last year because how could I not? Um, uh, right. But I, yeah, there's so there's there's a whole community and a whole empire kind of built around the airstream community. It's super interesting to start to kind of plug into. And there's such great reflectors of the world around them as well. Yep. Yep. They absolutely are. Yeah. They're, they're just visually so appealing. And mm -hmm. I, it's interesting that we're talking today because as we talked about, it's 25 degrees in Alaska and it is too cold officially to be hanging out outside in the mobile studio. And so unfortunately I have to put the studio to temporary storage to bed for the winter. And I'm going to, Right after we record, actually, I'm going to haul it over and put it into storage. And this morning I was in it and just kind of looking around and, yeah, just reflecting on the design of the interior and that I'm so grateful for the space and that I've already spent a wonderful half year inhabiting that space and getting to know it mm -hmm. and painting in it and traveling in it. And it's bittersweet putting it to rest for the winter, but it just made me really grateful for the experiences I've already had and also really looking forward to when I get to take it out of hibernation come spring. Oh, it's going in hibernation too. Why did I, I had this, I had this dream or this, this picture of you and a parka 
painting with snow up to the windows and and maybe there was and maybe there was paint smeared on your parka but you were just painting away in the airstream and i guess that's not going to happen is it i love that vision though i really do <laughs> probably not the reality so much though right steve so tell us about what uh the inside of your airstream looks like and how you've uh, chiseled out a part for your art in there yeah well so i worked with this company and this is relevant. I worked with this company called P&S Trailer Service. They're in Ohio and they work with a designer, Wood and Locks, and they're just an amazing duo. And after my exhaustive research of, there's lots and lots of folks who work on Airstreams across the country. But the thing that stood out about this place is that they have an agreement with Airstream Incorporated, which yes, Airstream is still actively making trailers, right? It's not just the retro refurbished ones, but PNS Trailer Service has this agreement with Airstream where they can get Airstream shells, just like the shell of the Airstream, no interior yet, just the basics, you know, your water tanks, your electric hookups, your lights, the floor, that. They get them right off the assembly line and then they work with their designer, Wooden Locks, to customize and build out the interior. And I went with that because one for me i'm an artist i'm on a budget i don't have you know a mortgage sized seriously i'm not joking budget to refurbish an airstream which is some of what these other folks who make beautiful products are charging that was way out of my budget and so they it was the most cost effective option just again getting it hot off the manufacturer line um and I wanted to be sure that the interior was really customized to spec because as you both know, artists are finicky about what space we work in and, you know, need things to be just so often in order to produce well. For me, the lighting was really important, the layout and having enough room to maneuver back and forth from my easel and my canvas to take in the bigger picture before going up and getting more detailed and painting and backing up again. And then of course, having ample storage space for canvas and paints and all of the accoutrement. And so it's a 19 foot trailer. I joke that it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, but that's echoed by folks who see it from the outside and step in for the first time and kind of gawk. The reaction I always get is this kind of looking around like, oh, wow, you know, like I've been, I was in one of these recently and it felt, you know, other RVs and other trailers can feel a lot more crammed, but it's very airy. As we talked about, the aluminum surface is quite reflective. And so it's not like being in a funhouse mirror, but it's reflective enough that it helps reflect the different light that's coming in from various windows. You've got the wraparound front window that's letting in plenty of natural light and other windows interspersed throughout. And then I've got custom cabinets that fit canvas and a little spot in the back between the kind of bathroom unit and this back bench that is both a sitting area and also doubles as kind of a sleeping area. And I can wedge my big easel back there. And then I've got a whole drawer dedicated to paints and then brushes. Uh, and then I will typically get set up if it's nice out and I don't have to wear my giant down parka and I'm not up to my eyeballs in snow. If it's nice out, I'll put up a- <laughs> Oh, my <I'll> dream. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, nice meaning a little bit warmer than that. Um, I will set up the awning outside and set up the easel to paint out there, which is literally a dream come true. Uh, and then if it's like 
you know, windy or rainy or anything like that. I, I can set up inside the trailer towards the front. And I have this kind of hallway-esque area by the kind of kitchen that I can back up and again, move forward, back up. Yeah, it's. I just describe it as light, airy, and very, very well designed with compact spaces where I can store art stuff and living stuff. I mean, the thing is designed to live in full time. Sounds like so much fun. Do you mostly paint from your plein air experiences or do you also use photographs as your as your source material? It's so interesting that you ask that because I prime I, I exclusively use photographs as my source oh. material. And it always disappoints people. Like I've been painting at trailheads and folks will come up and they're like really interested in what I'm doing when they think I'm doing it either from my head or just from plain air. And then they'll discover me with a photo in hand and they're always <laughs> so disappointed. And I have to give myself a little talking to like, no, Ali, the art you're doing is still legitimate. I, with the Airstream though, I am really inspired. I, I do want to take some plain air classes and learn more about that. It just seems like a natural next step in growth area for me. Ah, okay. But I'm, I'm just looking at this as an artist panacea. This is what everybody must really want in their mind. Yes, right. I do. I do. I want it. <laughs> yeah, well, Linda has a lot of plain air stories, so she was almost arrested one time. What? Oh, it was my very first plein air experience, and I was painting outside of a bank. I got permission to do that, but somehow I accidentally set off the alarms, and the police pulled up. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting experience. Yeah, so, <laughs> I wish you yeah. could see my face, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I hear plein air now, I'm like, oh, okay, Linda, arrested in the pokey handcuffs. Right, right. Oh, that's so, too funny. Allie, have you always been interested in art um, as a young child, or um, was it some experience in, in a school? What what actually got you into art? Yeah, thank you for asking that, Linda. I um, What got me into art was, was boredom, because oh. I was a really chronically asthmatic kid, which... To anybody who knows me now, I'm really, like, really active. Uh, I, I love being outside. I am uh, humble and aware of kind of what my body can do. And I think that is a direct result of that chronic childhood asthma. Because every single time I take a step anywhere, I'm like, you guys, did you see that? Did you see the thing that I was capable of doing that I once upon a time really couldn't do? And so as a kid, I was from age eight through like 13 or so, I was pretty sick and often bedridden. And so I, I remember wow. one year when I was in public school, I missed like 130 days out of 180 days of school, just kind of in and out of the hospital and then recovering at home and that whole thing. And I think just because I was kind of bored out of my head and iPhones hadn't been invented yet, you know, the internet was just coming around at this time. I, picked up sketchbooks and would draw and I would do collages for magazines and then I'd start drawing clips for magazines. Again, I was in, in public school for a lot of this time that I was bedridden or frequently bedridden. I wasn't, you know, an invalid, but I was definitely kind of out, out of pocket for a lot of the time. And, and then one year my parents pushed 
my mom especially pushed to have uh, the air quality at my public school tested just to, we had tried so many different things, right? I didn't have any pets. I had freaking blow up like plastic furniture at my dad's house at the time. We were just running the gamut trying to figure out what was like triggering my asthma so bad. And so we had the air quality tested at school and we were really clear. We asked them, you know, don't test for asbestos. You already tested for asbestos that came back negative. We need dust mites, mold. And the school came back with a negative asbestos test and nothing else and basically said to my parents, you know, you, we know it's a sick building. You guys aren't the only ones who are complaining. We're taking it down next year. Again, this was back in Massachusetts and it was a Arizona designed building for central air in a place that doesn't have, doesn't need the central air. And so the windows weren't opening. Mm -hmm. It was just accumulating crap in there and the air quality was bad. And so they were like, we know it's it's poor air quality. Here is what, you know, would have been Allie's taxpayer money through a graduating year. How about you guys find somewhere else to go? We looked around and, and fate would have it that right in our backyard, there was, I think, probably the most like alternative school in the country open campus policy so you could come and go as much as you wanted as long as you were there five hours a day you know i affectionately call it hippie school it was attractive to us because it meant that i could go to as many doctor's appointments as i needed to and not be docked for time and it happened the tuition just happened to be the same as what i was getting from the taxpayer payout right for through my graduating year and so my dad is the much more i think kind of traditional type a east coast you like find the half and you follow it diligently like that guy even he signed off on me going to this very again for lack of a better term and i say this affectionately for him like loosey-goosey school where i could literally decide to do what i wanted to do all day and when i got to the school my asthma disappeared overnight overnight wow Wow. Yeah. The change in environment, like that was it. After years, like again, age eight through 13, after years of trying to figure out what it was, my asthma disappeared overnight when I was just going to a different school environment every day. And then I was 13 and I didn't know who the heck I was if I wasn't absent all the time. Like I was so used to having an identity cultivated all around my not going to school and having asthma and being in and out of the hospital that when I didn't have that, I suddenly found myself lost, very lost in myself and surrounded by at the school, these people like from the staff, the adults, and then to my peers of all ages, like ages four through early twenties who were very clear on who they were. And so it was very daunting, but also, I remember without the language that I'm sharing with you now, this is obviously a lot of hindsight, but I do remember even at that time having the conviction that this was where I needed to be. This was the most important place for me at that time, because that place was going to, by virtue of it existing the way it did and giving me freedom, it it was going to be the key for me figuring things out. And good luck to me trying to articulate that to my dad, who's like, how are you going to take the SATs? And I'm like, the knitting I learned this last week. 
was really important. <laughs> I can't tell you how, quite yet. But this school gave me freedom of choice and responsibility. And so within this first year that I was there, I will be real with you. I did basically nothing. I did the aforementioned knitting. I learned how to make daisy chains. I watched people. I made some friends. And then in the subsequent years, I realized that the only person who was making me do nothing was me and that I have responsibility for my life. And if I wanted to do something, then I had better figure that out. And so I, I think I learned that a lot earlier than a lot of folks get to because of just the, that environment. And one of the first things I started doing was started to sketch, sketching at school. There was a staff person there who noticed my sketching and said, have you thought about painting? And I was like, no, how would one do that? And she kind of like paired me up with the materials. And I started painting there and had, again, the freedom of time to do that and just started kind of really taking my time and growing into that in that place. And I should say just by way of credit that the school's called Sudbury Valley School and it's in Framingham, Massachusetts. And I, I owe that place a profound debt of gratitude for the time and freedom that it afforded me that really fully allowed me to really be on the phone with you, right? Like really be who I am in the way that I am. Allie, who, who sponsored the school? Uh, it's private. Private? Yeah, private school, but lowest tuition in the country then and I think maybe even still now. Be besides you, who went there? Um, yeah, I mean, there were about 200 folks when I was there ages four and then up and it's um i mean mostly folks from around the region but broadly defined the region i remember a couple of folks were commuting in from maine because it's such a unique place and then there's folks who would move there to go and then there's you know there's been a lot of other schools who have kind of sprung up in the model uh all around the country and around the world so i think it's yeah it kind of attracts different folks who some of them really want to go to that kind of keystone school and then Again, these other schools are also an option. That's such a thought-provoking story about your illness and how it affect yourself, affected your self-identity. We don't often think about illness in children and, and what that does to their growth. You certainly right. overcame that and not just overcame that illness, but rose above it in your personal and your artistic life, your professional life. I appreciate that. Yeah, I am. Um, it's so interesting. I've talked to my dad about all of this, and I, I've definitely written about aspects of it. And he and I are both very careful not to say things like, maybe it was a blessing in disguise, right? Like, I, I can't when people say stuff like that. And mm -hmm. to your point, I fully feel that I wouldn't be who I am without that adversity and those lessons and what I'm carrying forward, right? And so it's it's pretty complicated. I wouldn't wish that upon myself or upon anybody. And yet here we are with these skills and this life that I've I'm really I, I feel very fortunate to inhabit. And I I think it's due to that kind of challenging setup that I'm here the way that I am. So it's, sure. that's a tough, it's like, you know, holding two things at once. Absolutely.
Well, do you think at 13 you were mature enough to make these decisions or these decisions, it, it just happened that way because of your illness? That's such a good question. I fervently believe that I was mature enough. And actually, in my kind of radical educational views, I fervently believe that people are like I and and I think that, it, you know, as a you can see that the proof is in the pudding that school wasn't for everybody, but certainly just in thinking about the really rich lives that the alumni go on to lead, I think that, you know, I can only I'll speak for myself at 13. Again, I didn't necessarily have the language. I couldn't articulate it the way that I'm articulating it now. But I knew that there was a due north for me. I knew that there was something that I had to figure out about myself. And I kind of knew hazily those steps that I needed to take to get there. You know, that that feeling of immense responsibility for my own life was just very present once I was given the opportunity and the freedom to actually find it. <laughs> it was when I thought I had these people to rebel against who were telling me how to handle my time that I was focusing all of my energy there. And then, you know, after my year of blaming somebody who didn't exist for my time out in the lawn doing daisy chains, again, I figured out like, well, if you're bored, Allie, like who's that really on? There's nobody actually here telling you what to do and what not to do. I just, and, and this gets down to a, a guest one of our artists, I shouldn't say yes, an artist that we interviewed here, Joyce. And Joyce told us, because you know, when I went to school, it was math and English and science, and you better get those good grades. And Joyce told us her story when she was in school that she was terrible at math. She wasn't interested in English, but she did art good. And she said mm -hmm. art bridged the gap for her. And eventually she went and got an, uh, a math degree and started teaching math. But it wasn't working out for her, but art and creativity bridged the gap for her to, to bring her along to where where she ended up being, which is good. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely happened for me, right? Like topics that I'm trying to think of an example, but like topics that I wouldn't think I was interested in just on their own. I become more interested in when it's through the lens of something that I find that I'm good at or passionate about, right? Um, so I can totally see that. I'm just trying to get my mind around. You were not a floundering 13-year-old who went to the school. You were someone who was able to take advantage of that environment and then direct yourself where you wanted to be. I think I was a floundering 13 year old actually when I got there, right? Yeah. That first year was me literally like doing nothing. Um, but I did. And then I looked around and saw all these examples or I was taking that in during that full year. I was looking around me and seeing all these examples of people who were actively doing what they wanted to be doing in these creative and individual ways. And that was really inspiring to me to not glom on to whatever they were doing right but to figure out for myself like well, what do you want to be doing out like what's your unique thing that you want to be spending your time on everybody else is making the most of their time here doing that thing for themselves so like yeah shoot your shot right so kind of building on what you're saying it's like yeah i i, I did end up cultivating that sense of direction for myself but it was both the environment and then also the exposure to so many examples of people who were my age and younger and older who were also in that journey for themselves and 
you know, when I got there, I didn't know how to make, I, I couldn't make eye contact with people. Like I, I was so, it felt like it was too bright to look at, like just the amount of life that was there. And then over, and I had a staff person remark to me later, when you walk down the walk, right, you, you did, you, you carried yourself like an older person. I had a weight about me. And then when, by the time I, I left and graduated, I, you know, was well on my way to fully, much more fully inhabiting me. And now my sister teases me that I'm like aging down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a, I, I love it. And I actually, I do feel like that. I'm in my late thirties now and I, I know I'm young one. And then two, I do feel very young and I forget how old I am often, which I take pride in. And then I try to model it for my 19 year old stepdaughter. Right. Cause I think there's so many, especially women out there who bemoan their age and check their face for wrinkles. And I just, I feel like every year I'm just getting stronger and better and more secure and more confident and looking forward to what the rest of my hopefully long life has to afford. And I, again, I think I got that solid basis in that school experience and it's emphasized too. Like I, I did a lot of art when I was young and I was at, at Sudbury Valley. And then I, um, you know, I will say I had a lot of questions around, you know, what legitimacy does this experience, the school experience carry with me into the, the real world. And so I spent a lot of years kind of not again, not articulating it this way, but kind of proving myself in more white collar professional environments. And I think I've proven myself and I've found a niche that I enjoy within the more kind of professional classic, like, you know, at my laptop in office settings type sphere. But in these past few years, again, as I've just gotten older and more comfortable and more aware of myself and given myself permission to do that, I have much more fully embraced, hey, you have one life to live. You want to do art and writing? Let's give it our best shot. And so, yeah, I'm really um, I'm grateful for every year that passes that, that way. Allie, you had mentioned earlier when you talked with Steve and me before we started the podcast that for you, art is work. Can you explain that? Gladly. Yeah, I I think it's so interesting. I think, you know, a lot of folks will find out that I'm a painter and I will get the impression that they think, wow, you spend all this time painting, like you must basically like kind of embody that Bob Ross, happy tree, happy cloud, kind of like popularized vibe. And for me, there are absolutely moments of euphoria in art. I am, I use the word euphoria very deliberately. Feels like runner's high. There are these little flashes of very, very intense joy and calm and gratitude and satisfaction. And those are the exception, not the rule. I use the same part of my brain when I'm painting as I use when I'm in consulting and working with clients. I use strategy. I have to adapt my strategy based on what's happening in front of me. 
I have to re- self-regulate my nervous system. If something is freaking me out, like if something on canvas is not going quite the way I want it to, I literally have to kind of try to breathe through it. I have to be tactical. Like what is paint I'm going to use today? Oh, I'm out of the paint. I got to go get the paint. This color isn't quite working. How am I going to course correct? It's a big expenditure of energy. And for me to, who's a, I am the most lazy, productive person you will ever meet. Like I love my couch. I love my couch. I love sitting. I love doing nothing. I love beach vacations, but I am not satisfied with that all the time. I know that for me, my deepest fear is looking back on my life when I'm 90 and thinking like, what did you do? Right? Like you wasted it. And so that's how I tap into the discipline that's needed to overcome my couch and my inherent laziness and actually go to the canvas and produce art, which I know does enrich my life and does bring me meaning and also affords me those fleeting and wonderful lightning in a bottle type moments of joy and euphoria. But it takes diligence, right? Like it takes focus and consistency. And I often will be pretty disciplined with myself about setting up a schedule during which I paint. I'm very strategic about when I paint because my energy is best in the mornings. And I know that about myself. And so I often have to give it's like, okay, Allie, it's like a hard run this morning, or it's like giving this painting your best effort, which is it's going to be right. And so I, yeah, it absolutely it's work that's incredibly meaningful and very, very worth it. But I just want to dispel that at least for me, the painting is not going into a la la land, happy place. That doesn't mean I don't love it. Like I love it. Absolutely. And <laughs> it, it takes every ounce of me to do. That's so encouraging to me because I often feel art is work as well. And it involves a lot of problem solving for me, but some of my artistic friends say it comes so easy to them and and they just they're like the Bob Ross type I guess I hear you and I'm with you (laughs) that makes me feel better Linda I'm really glad that that's helpful for you to hear again it's taken me a long time to kind of give myself permission to articulate it that way but uh here's to us art worker and creators huh right exactly (laughs) your style I'm getting the impression your style is mostly landscape or and where do you get your ideas Good question. Yeah, I my style is mostly landscape. I have dabbled in some portraiture when I was a lot younger. I've done plenty of dog portraits, mostly commission work and some. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, and then some, you know, um, structures. But the challenge with structures is, at least for me, I end up when I have to do straight lines, I often have to hold my breath. (laughs) And so when you see pieces that I've produced that have a lot of straight lines, just imagine me holding my breath a lot. Um, Okay, not super comfortable. But landscapes, I love being outside. I love being in wild places. And I especially love sharing those feelings with people. Sometimes that's really hard to translate. Like I am that person on a hike or on a camping trip that's as the kids say kind of extra and really exuberant about the scenery oh my gosh do you see look at the color look at the light and it gets old um i'm fine it's fine but it, it gets old but one way that i have to accurately describe and translate that and share it 
I, it, it's a meditation for me painting the landscape. And then it's also a way of sharing is through painting because when I paint something, it's like I'm putting some skin in the game of the story that I want to tell. When somebody looks at the painting, it's, it's, Oh wow. Like she put effort into this. Let's take a closer look at it. Also, my paintings are realistic enough that I think it, it, frequently they'll give people a, a double take. Like, I think they're pretty clearly paintings, but I'll often get the, oh, this looks so realistic. I thought it was a photograph at first, right? So it's drawing people's attention to this scene that resonated with me. And a lot of times to your question, Linda, it'll be about the way the light is hitting, the colors, the contrast, maybe like a man-made feature that helps put the scenery to scale like I love me a little tent or a, a silhouette of a person kind of in the background or um, just kind of showing the scale and also helping me reflect on and helping people see that the kind of awe and beauty that is available to each of us as humans is not solely located in the back country like yes that's amazing I do plenty of paintings of that kind of landscape but I also really love lamp posts and the way that they illuminate more kind of everyday beautiful scenes. And I, I have to remind myself and, you know, the deep, deepest, darkest days of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic were a good lesson in presence <laughs> for mm -hmm. me in being in one place and looking around and really focusing on the appreciation of, going deep in one spot versus going broad in a lot of different places and seeing that kind of vastness and beauty. And, and in the paintings that I choose that are, you know, have utility poles and electric wires, you know, against like a backdrop of the sunset mountains, for instance, like what I'm trying to point out is that each of us have ways of accessing awe and beauty every day. And it's just a matter of being open to those moments and actually taking the time and presence that's needed to enjoy them and take them in. And what I hope is that those paintings that I'm creating is a brief portal into one of those moments that I saw, but then also a reminder to be on the lookout and be present for them, for each of us as those, as those occur. I love your vision for your art. I'm guessing you're probably an oil painter. Am I wrong? I'm acrylic. Acrylic. Oh, okay. Goes back to my laziness. <laughs> oil, I mean, oil takes so much to clean up the turpentine and all this. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, also, teaching this old dog a new trick. Someday, I'll, I'll gladly take, I think I took one oil class a long time ago, but it would be fun to dabble in it and experiment, but acrylics are just so easy <laughs> as they, far as the medium they are um do you use traditional acrylics then or do you do use uh mediums to slow the drying process down you want to you know share with really us embarrassing is i don't know i just know i go to michael's and i pick out different paints and i'm pretty liberal with the use of water to water down the medium uh, <sighs> i will say that i love that <laughs> I'm just sitting here with my jaw open because this is so amazing. <laughs> Allie, what a story you have. One of the questions we ask about the rules of art, and we get so many different answers. Mm -hmm. But your answer, if you want to say what your answer was. Right, I don't know them. <laughs> your, your answer is, I think, 95% of what we get back. I don't know. Really? Yes. 
Oh, I'm in good company. You're, you're in great company, I think. Mistakes, when you make a mistake, assuming that you have a critic in your head, how do you handle them? Oh, yeah. My critic's brutal. Does it have a name? It should. Yeah, we, we, oh, we, we, have, we, we got a friend here who has a, a critic in his head. His name is Bruno. And, and he's always fighting with Bruno. It's it's a pretty hilarious story. That's really funny. That's a really that's a good. I like the idea of giving the critic a name because it's calling it what it is. The worst part about my inner critic is, it just kind of mushed between the rest of my thoughts and presents as reality. Right. <laughs> it's interesting because I think my inner critic is useful to me, in that it keeps me humble. Like I I start. Even having completed however many paintings by now, I start each painting pretty convinced that it's going to be the last one that I'm going to be able to do. <laughs> or maybe this is the one that will finally do me in and I won't be able to complete it. I was chatting way too much. That's why I was pulling Steve in. <laughs> oh, you're I, fine. And I even gave him the question to read. <laughs> and and I, I'm, no, I'm no artist, so I get to do this. And like I've said, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I get to That's meet amazing. all these people and hear about all this art stuff. And my whole week this week is art. I love it. You're an artist, too. No, you know I'm, that. I'm not. <laughs> Allie, do you make art to sell or for your soul? Yes. I love I, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel very lucky to... I'm just... I don't want to be falsely humble, right? Like, I, I know that I have an innate talent for art. I also know that as we talked about, it takes a lot of work and focus and effort to refine any talent and actually decide to do something with it. Anybody can be talented in a vacuum and I'm grateful for this innate thing that I have and also take it seriously that if I wanna actually cultivate it and bring it into the world, that's, that's on me. I have a great many interests in life that I wanna pursue and art is something that I want to fill up more and more of that kind of Venn diagram of what's in my direct focus and how I spend my time. And I got to make a buck, right? And so I'm trying to satisfy both doing this thing that I love, that is also work, that is also a way to bring in some income. Now, the trick for me is I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I got a choice of the book that I wanted to do for a book report. And I picked one of my favorite pieces of fiction at the time. And by the end of it, I remember saying to my mom, like, well, that ruined the book for me because it was just so much over -anal an analysis. And I didn't want to pick the thing that I loved apart. And similarly with art, the continuum that I'm on is that I want, I want to do it in such a way that I get to focus on it, but that it doesn't put so much pressure on painting that it really truly does kind of spoil it and become purely a grind. That's why uh, my husband and I just sold our house up here. Actually, I'm sitting in the middle of kind of chaos and moving boxes and all this stuff because we want to be moving into an era of our life where we have more economic freedom and therefore fewer financial obligations. So kind of paring down our mortgage, paying off the mobile art studio, paying off student loan debt, et cetera, so that we have more freedom as far as what we want to do with our time and for work. 
And for me, that means continually, well, maybe not, I think I might actually be at the balance that I want to be at, at least for a while here when it comes to producing art and income from art and writing and consulting. You know, I work my traditional job now 24 hours a week. I love the work that I do through consulting. It's really, really hard. <laughs> You're getting a theme. It's like, it's really challenging and it takes everything when I'm in it. And then similar for art, when I'm doing my art on art days, um, it's really, really challenging. And my boss, myself, man, she's uh, she's brutal. But I always feel really good about what I do produce and and the efforts that I put in on those days. I just finished a commission yesterday. It's a four foot wide, two foot tall, backcountry seen mountains in the background sunset beautiful fall time red alpine tundra in the foreground and it was hard right like again like we talked about his work but also the whole time i'm painting it i'm thinking this is work <laughs> you get to call this work <laughs> so yeah I, it's a complicated answer to that well and I, you know what it's it's kind of a question for me because now i'm retired and I have enough money, my wife and I do, to live the rest of our lives. We don't have to work. We can't go spend a million dollars. But you know, So I can ask a question like, do you make art to sell or for your soul? Because anything I do is for my soul. Okay, but I, And I kind of lose sight that there are people who are making a living out of selling their art. And, and, and you just did a commission. So is, is the commission hard? Because it's it's someone else's vision, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And congratulations on retirement, by the way. That's awesome. And well, you know, it's because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no congratulations. It was just happening, you know. <laughs> was the commission or commissions hard? I've gotten a lot more, a lot smarter about commission work over the years. And now I have a pretty formal, formal, I say that with an asterisk because it's a deliberate process of communication back and forth and negotiation about what commission work I'm taking on. And I learned that the hard way because I took on a commission a bunch of years ago where it was a scene of three women in some European city and the commissioner was getting it painted for his then girlfriend. And he asked me, you know, can you modify this so that this person is in the picture and he handed me another photograph. I very rarely, I, I work pretty stringently from photo references. Right. And so I very rarely will like mix it up like that, but I looked at it and I said, yeah, I can do that. Now here's the thing. What he meant, which was totally reasonable was, can you add this fourth person to the picture? What I heard was, can you swap this person for somebody that's in the picture? And I proceeded with the commission. <laughs> and when he came to pick it up, he seemed a little rushed. It was weird. I was like, well, do you like it? You know, like there was like maybe one cursory, like, oh, this looks great. And then he like got out. But it seemed it seemed like something was going on. And I kind of I brushed it off at the time. I was like, oh, it's not about you, Allie. Not everything's about you. He's going through something. But then later, right, I learned no, he wanted me to add the person. That makes a lot more sense, right? Add the person versus swap them out. And it makes and so, a difference too, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, just a little bit. This is kind of like the 
yeah um poor grammar examples right mm -hmm. <laughs> like those so what what i've what i've learned from this is that it really helps to have a a good deliberate kind of back and forth process of negotiating what's on the table for commission and and my process looks like somebody initiates an email to me with roughly what they're looking for when photo references if they have them I respond to go back back and forth a bit and then and this is all you know information is on my website so folks can see like the rough price range they can see my preferences like I prefer to do landscapes I've done the occasional thaw right like they see all that up front and then I send back a contract that includes a pretty painstaking written description of what the commission work is and then a blow by blow of the pricing and then a place for both of us to sign and the photo reference and all of that. And then I send, I send pictures of the painting along the way just for kind of fun, like folks enjoy it, but then also, and this is written out in the contract, right? It's like for any kind of, um, guidance that is um, I can integrate in. So like, for instance, I was doing a commission about a month ago where I had to ask like this color in the photo reference you gave me looks like it's green. And the guy said, no, in real life, it's actually more of like a navy blue. So that was really helpful feedback to get. And I was able to alter the commission as I was doing it accordingly. All that to answer your question, I am realistic, a lot more realistic about the commission work that I take on. I'm a lot more upfront about what I prefer doing and I will reject commission work sometimes. Like I got very sweet question about me painting like a, a Jesus portraiture for somebody's church. And I don't do portraiture very well to begin with, not to mention something that high stakes. So I very politely and immediately declined that offer. <laughs> so no trip to the Sistine Chapel for you to, uh, <laughs> to touch up to the work? I'd love to take a look at it. I can admire art till the cows come home. It doesn't mean I'll be next up in doing that, no. <laughs> in your professional career, have you ever thrown away a piece of art or do you just set it back and look for a while and look at it later? You know what? I have a piece of art on my porch that I've just never liked. I've never really <sighs> it. I've never liked that we're cleaning out our house as we we're getting ready to leave. And I, my husband was like, well, I'll put it up in my office. And I was like, I don't want that being the representation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it might be somebody else's treasure. I, I used to do uh, porcelain art. Yeah. And I was told, put put my ugly pieces out as well as the beautiful finished products because invariably the first piece you sell will be that ugly piece that you set out and and it did happen sometimes interesting it's good to know that's good to know okay <laughs> oh, so hard Allie, if all the right words could be written, there would be no need for painting or art. What do you think about that? <laughs> I, again, like to express and connect using as many mediums as possible. And so I do, I write and I paint. And so, no, I think art Art comes in different expressions. I do believe that writing is an expression of art, just not a necessarily always or even often visual 
form and the way that we think about classic art. And so I think both of them done well are ways of accessing different meaning and truths in the world and reaching not even different people, but just different facets of ourselves and bringing those more towards each other and, and into the world. So no, I do not think that writing negates painting, especially as somebody who does both, but I like, I think they kind of, they accomplish different things. And, and, and I'm, okay, I'm okay to say, Steve, that's a stupid question. Cause I got that question as well as the next one, the statement, if a perfect painting could be created, we would not need books. And I got both of those questions from a podcast I was listening to really? somewhere. Yeah, they didn't ask yeah. those exact things, but they were talking about that. And I was like, oh, I'm going to put these down here. I was like, don't put those <laughs> down, Steve. They're dumb. I well, do you get interesting responses to those? We never ask them. Uh, That's the first time Linda picked up on it. Allie, do you sell your art online? Do you have a, a website or a social media link? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm at... AllieHarveyArt.com. It's A-L-L-I-H-A-R-V as Victor, E-Y-Art.com. Proud to maintain my little website by myself. And on the, on the site, you can see examples of past works and also everything that is currently available for sale. And that includes original paintings and also some fun merchandise like greeting cards and magnets. Um, there's more on the mobile art studio on my site. There's a blog that I maintain. And then there's more about me and also how you can commission art. And then I stay in touch through very, very periodic emails. Like I'm talking like three, maybe four times a year max emails, which you can also sign up for on my site. Those are kind of more inside scoop. I share photos. I share kind of musings from art and updates and sometimes kind of sneak peeks of things that are coming up or you know I do like an annual calendar every year and that goes through my mailing list before anybody else knows about it so you kind of get dibs through there and then yeah I maintain uh social media through Facebook and Instagram my handle on both is at a harv art so a h a r v a r t uh, and I'm I'm pretty active on both I share paintings. I share kind of behind the scenes of ongoing paintings. I share anecdotes from life in Alaska and, and on the road with the mobile art studio. I'll, I'll share pieces of writing as those are published. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's a really fun way to stay connected and stay in touch. Musings from the Airstream blog. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can hardly wait to look and I can tell you, you're going to have a follower here. Yay! So, Allie, is there a story that sticks out with any of your pieces of art? Have you ever had, um, being in Alaska, do you ever have encounters with wildlife? Yeah, but I have to say the story that sticks out from a piece of my art the most is the second painting that I ever did, right? You can imagine, like, the very early days of my painting, each one, I was teaching myself as I was going. And so each one had layers and layers and layers of invisible dried acrylic underneath the final painting. And each one was just, if what I'm talking about now is, is work, like lower caps, that was like work, like all caps work. Mm -hmm. Each one of those paintings was just huge. 
And so I invested a lot of myself in each of them. I think they took each of them would take months. When I was initially painting, I was working from what other people considered failed photographs. In this case, it was a trove of failed yearbook photographs from my school. And they hadn't made it into the official yearbook, but they were kind of the outcasts. And I, I enjoyed looking through them and finding scenes that were still intriguing to me, whether for how they were laid out or light, color. And one of those scenes was from a backpacking trip that, that had been a school-led trip that I hadn't been able to go on. I, I got into being outdoors and into backpacking largely through school and school-led trips. I really came into my own capabilities and came into my own strength. There's literally one foot after another up hills. And, you know, that feeling of amazement when you summit a mountain and look around and think, oh, wow, I did that. I got myself here. I do. That got, yeah, I, I heard you just, you just completed a few. I think I heard at the beginning of this, right? Yes, recently. Yeah, she put Congrats. a picture up on Facebook. I'll brag in that. No. She, she climbed this 13,000. Oh, the 12,000. 12,000. It only took me two trips and over six hours. <laughs> but wow. let's, you can cut all that out, Steve. So let's go back to where, <laughs> where we were. Yeah, so I got really hooked on that feeling of both kind of being in the Alpine and also that notion that my body could take me there one step at a time. And that's where I started getting more into not just overcoming my asthma, but really pursuing more fitness so that I could do more of that. I really liked that feeling. But for whatever reason, I think probably a work conflict, I hadn't been able to be on this particular trip that the photo had been taken and I'd been really sad that I hadn't been able to go. And it was a reject photo from this trip because it was the upper part of the trip participants at the top of some mountain in New Hampshire, which is kind of our stomping grounds in Massachusetts. And, and then just this beautiful sky with mountains um, just behind everybody kind of in the lower part. But the photo was mostly sky, right? Like, Maybe just an eighth of it was the people in the mountains. So I think that's why it was in the reject pile. But when I saw that photo, I thought, oh, this is a trip I really wanted to go on. This is kind of another way to connect with that scene. And with all of these people who are my friends and my mentors. And so I invested, you know, second painting, my many months in creating it. And what that painting taught me was how hard it is to paint a sky that's cloudless in its entirety because it goes from a deep blue to practically white. Mm -hmm. And I had to get there from one corner of the painting to the other. And it was painstaking. And now skies are one of my favorite things to do because I feel pretty competent at them. And I've they're always, there's no formula, like it's not like, you know, paint by numbers, but I know enough and I trust myself enough that I know what the process feels like and I know how to keep things wet and loose and moving and, and blending as I'm going. But that was the first time that I learned painstakingly 
and many trial and errors, how to do that. And the resulting painting was something that it, I was proud of it. I was really proud of the effort, but it was also just moving to me and that it was a way to memorialize this place and this feeling that I'd come to love and also these people who meant so much to me. And that painting then, <laughs> so not long after when I had like a little body of paintings, my art mentor at the school at the time was like, have you thought about doing a little gallery? And I said, no. And she encouraged me to put my stuff up somewhere for display. So I contacted the nearby Starbucks and Barnes and Noble and I set up a gallery opening with them and uh, the time neared, I had to go hang up paintings and they asked me this wild question, which was how much are your paintings? <laughs> what are the titles and how much are each of your paintings? And I hadn't even thought about that. And so I went back to my art mentor and I, I was like, what do I do? And she's like, well, do you want to sell them? And I said, no. And she said, we'll just price them for above what they're worth. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I did. And that painting and almost all of the rest of them sold. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and two things from that. One, those sales that the proceeds I took, and that's what funded my first trip to Alaska. Like, mm. I was like, well, I could be responsible about this and put it into savings for myself or... I could go see about this Aurora that I've always wanted to see. And so I, I found a friend whose parents were willing to let us go. I was 16 and he was 17 at the time. I was so entitled. I was like, of course I'm going to go to Alaska. <laughs> and now in retrospect, I realized the amount of trust that our parents placed in us and why they made us go through the quote unquote exercise of telling them our itinerary and the names and the phone numbers of the places we would be staying, how onerous. Um, so those paintings that that painting included funded this kind of next step on my journey to embracing wilderness and being outside. And then the fellow that the paintings sold to was somebody that I had actually just gotten to know through serving him at a coffee shop I worked at. And he ended up living part-time in Massachusetts and then Brazil for the longest time and took, and ultimately I think he's maybe full-time in Brazil now. And he took that painting and then one he purchased later down with him to Brazil and he still stays in touch with me. And so it meant a lot to have somebody that I'd kind of gotten to know peripherally in that era of life, like kind of my first art client who was kind of a stranger who saw and connected with my work and has stayed connected with me ever since. And it made me happy that that particular piece, if I had to part with it, went with him and is still with him down in Brazil. Isn't it great? That's a gr fantastic story. The, the people Absolutely. we meet and the people we meet through art. Yes. Yeah. And the stories we hear like today you're so in, you're so inspiring to me, actually, Allie. That makes me so happy, Linda, because that's all I want to be. <laughs> me too. I, in, 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 fact, in, in fact, I want to be 16 and go to Alaska for the first time. Uh, yes, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Steve, I would go with you. Would you? <laughs> 
and your wife. Yeah, but we'd, we'd, have, we'd have to give your husband and my wife all the itinerary. Right, exactly. exactly, exactly. And you have to print it out on your desktop computer in your parents' basement. Yes, yes. Oh, maybe we maybe we give yeah. them the AAA triptychs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but Linda, seriously, thank you. That means a lot to me. I, I don't mean to say like, I want to be inspiring from like a uh, self-inflated place. It's more of a, like, I love the feeling of connection. And so to have you say that to me is just like, okay, cool. Like I'm, I'm trying it with the art. I'm trying it with the writing. And now by virtue of kind of sharing some of these stories, like I just want, I want to connect. So that, that brings me great joy. And thank you for saying that. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. And that's what I enjoy so much about these podcasts is the opportunity to connect with, with artists and historians and, humanitarian scholars, all kinds of interesting people that Steve finds. Yeah. That I find. <laughs> Linda just found us a, a, a band. I did. Yeah, and we can hardly wait to do that. What has inspired you this past week? Something that I know Nevadans all know very well is wind, which we also have wind up here in Palmer, where I live in particular in Alaska, it's kind of known for its winds raging from, we're at the confluence of two glaciers and we literally get like glacial winds barreling through the valley. And I don't really like wind. I find it uncomfortable. I find it unsettling. I find the glacial kind in particularly rather cold it's not like I spend days dreading it, but when it's happening, I'm like, I wish the wind would die down. And the other night I was trying to sleep and the wind had picked up. And so I was, it was kind of wrestling me out of sleep. I was feeling stressed, stressed. I turned on a fan in, in our bedroom so that I could kind of drown, drown out the wind outside, which I know is funny, create more wind inside to drown out the wind outside, but it worked. And I fell back to back asleep, but then when I woke back up, it was still winding out. I am now a 10,000 steps a day person. <laughs> so I got to get my my movement and my walks. That next morning, I, despite the wind, set out to go for a walk. I'm in this like season of life where we're packing up our stuff. We're getting ready to move. We've got the mobile arts studio in tow. It's going into hibernation. Just a lot of change, right? A lot of change. And a lot to kind of think on. And as I was leaving my driveway, which I'm surrounded by, it's snowy everywhere, snow on the ground, breezy, cool, clear sky. I look up and I see this raven that's like wheeling around in the wind. I'm not to like anthropomorphize, but it looks like it's having a grand old time. And it settles down on a nearby telephone pole and I'm just kind of watching it. I'm not a birder. I'm not. Uh, I love birds. I became a temporary birder during the like deepest, darkest parts of the pandemic when it was like bird TV outside and I didn't have much to look at, but I don't know that much about birds, but they're fascinating to look at and particularly ravens and what I know of them being so smart and charismatic and uh, clever and I watched this one raven just like kind of wheeling around and then settle on the pole and then kind of look around like it was just very animated. 
Uh, I don't think this is like the technical term for it, but it did like the bird butt wiggle thing up there and like just <laughs> kind of fluffing out <laughs> and uh, just kind of taking in the scenery around it. And as I looked at what it was looking at, there were all of these other birds that were kind of wheeling around above my street high in the air, like not like, you know, the birds level, like uh, threatening, but just kind of seemingly playing in all of the different air currents and the wind. And I was so inspired in that moment by this idea that like wind was actually just kind of stirring things up and it might just be something that I could play with. Like it doesn't have to be something that was just there to like cause me discomfort or stress or unnecessarily create like a dust up in my head. Like it could just kind of be there moving stuff around and that stuff was moving around in me and that that's okay and that this too will pass and the wind will settle but like in the meantime why not have a sense of kind of play and fun and possibility and just kind of existing in it kind of like the birds were and sometimes my 10,000 steps are hard to get like it's just a grind but that walk I just walked and I felt so buoyant and I felt such a great sense of kind of presence and I wasn't irritated by I was aware but I wasn't irritated by the wind at all and so yeah what inspired me this past week was a raven and <laughs> its relationship to wind and it's a really very timely and healthy reminder for me that as somebody who can be pretty fixated and head down on details and 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 susceptible to stress and fixating on stress that there's another way to do it that like life Yes, it's important to be responsible and get the things done. I feel strongly about doing the things that I say I will do, but there's also a way to just be in all this change, but still have a sense of ease and play about it and kind of let things happen as they will happen and enjoy it as it, as it unfolds. I was taking that in as you, the writer. I was listening to it as if you were reading a book to me. That was fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> it helps that I jotted notes down about it, right? So that oh. might appear in an upcoming column. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, Allie, thank you very much. This was amazing, wonderful. Was. All the other words I can't come up with at this yeah. second, but we loved it. I just had so much fun doing this, and I'm inspired by you, truly. This is just fantastic interview, and we thank you, Allie. Steve and Linda, thank you both so very much for having me. I love what you do. I look forward to hearing your upcoming podcast. And someday when I'm down in your neck of the woods, I would love to come and visit and see what's going on down there. Ooh, yeah, we would love to have you. Yeah, we'd love to have we'd love to have you not only at our art gallery, but Linda and I can take you because I know you're a big Nevada wilderness mm-hmm. person anyway, but Linda mm-hmm. and I can take you into some interesting places. Oh, absolutely. In. I'm there. It's a date. (laughs) Good, good. Allie, be warm. Have fun. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, Allie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It was good, huh? It was good. I thought so many interesting people. And then I get, I truly get more inspired to do more of my own art, just listening to people. I think more than even going to the gallery and looking at people's art, just hearing people's life stories. That's what I should say for this. <laughs> hearing people's life life stories and thinking about 
how they've overcome obstacles and art was that medium for them which was a vehicle for their thoughts and emotions. Steve, what's inspired you this week? Well, what's inspired me this week? You and eight others of us went on a hike, and I know you're going to be saying, Steve, what hike? Because you took three or four hikes this week, but I only took one. We went to a place in Gobi National Monument, and we ran across these fossils. Okay, you remember the fossils? It was a whole wall full of them. And what we found out that they were some type of nautili, I guess they're related to the nautilus, but they're from 488 million years ago. One of the paleontologists that answered for us told us that they were at the top of their food chain 488 million years ago. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so they were the T-Rex of their time. Oh. And they were, you think, some of them were a foot long? Oh, much longer. I climbed up higher than you, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> some of those were two or three feet long, truly. Were they really? Yes. They were amazing. Yeah. So maybe we'll put some of those pictures up with this. But. Yes. That, you know, that was really my inspiration for this week as well. Just thinking, oh my gosh, here I am looking at something that was for over 400 million years ago that lived and, and looking at his fossil. And just thinking about the circle of life and the tarantulas we saw, yeah. just how lucky we are to be on this wonderful planet. Yeah. Actually, we saw a tarantula with just six legs. We did. And it had the most inquisitive legs, didn't it? It did. The legs would come out and it would touch things. Because, uh -huh. Linda, didn't you lay a lay something down for it to touch? or? Uh, some, I think somebody did. Yeah. It wasn't me, but they they did, yes. And it came, oh, it was on a hiking pole. Somebody That's had their right. hiking poles. And it came down, this is the tarantula with six yeah. legs. And with one of its legs, it just probed. Yeah. It probed, and then it said, I'm going the other way. I guess it didn't like what it felt. And one of the tarantulas I noticed followed you around, Steve, wherever you went. I, I think he was trying to adopt you. Maybe you could have had a pet there. Well, I, I, I had bought tarantula food. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us at the Art Box, Linda. Thank you. But until next time. Until next time, Steve, this is wonderful. Thanks Thank for including me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. <laughs>